Hey, Pod Academy listeners. Today's interview is with Professor Sean B. Carroll, and he's written quite a remarkable book about his world of microbiology and the larger world of animals on the Serengeti. He's a wonderful speaker, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy our interview today. You're listening to Ideas Books. My name's Craig Barfoot. Ideas Books is a weekly show interviewing authors about books that help change the way we think about our world. In today's conversation with biologist Sean B. Carroll, we find out how wolves can change the physical flow of a river. These sort of connections, we just didn't imagine them very many decades ago. And we also discover why, if you're an animal on the African Serengeti, 150 kilograms is the number which determines if you're going to get eaten or not. It makes me think, you know, what is what do Oribe parents tell their youngsters as they're growing up? You know, someday, 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 Junior, you're going to be eaten alive and fulfill your purpose in nature. Professor Sean B. Carroll has written a book that travels the globe in search of the logical rules that govern all of life, from tiny molecules to entire ecosystems, and seeks some answers to the question, how does life work? Sean, thanks so much for taking time out to have a chat with me. My pleasure. To start off with, can you maybe give us a bit of an overview as to how wildlife parks and, and nature protection areas around the world are going? Are, are, are they working, thriving, struggling? Well, um, it's Apache picture. Uh, I, the, the overall, the organizations that closely monitor wildlife would report that about half of the world's wildlife has disappeared in the last 40 years. So populations have overall decreased, and that's most attributable to the fact that we use more of the land now than we did 50 years ago. And when humans are using land, that's going to be um, less wildlife. Now, parks uh, are a significant force in preserving what's um, around what wildlife is around, and it's in the low teens percentage, perhaps, of land that's set aside for um, for wildlife and and you know for for us not exploiting it in other ways. So and and how well those parks are doing is a, is a patchy picture around the world. Some parks are just really parks on paper. If there's not protection and enforcement going on then those parks may be being emptied of their wildlife. In other places, they're well patrolled. Um, there's you know, good guidelines around, l- lots of visitors, healthy tourism industry, and those parks uh, may be thriving. When you say that uh, it's in the low teens, is, is there a, a sort of a, a rough percentage of the Earth's surface that scientists say would be optimal in order to maintain and stop the disappearance of species? I don't know that there's a consensus number yet. Um, I think we understand, and the reason it's tricky on land, and the reason why it's tricky on land is it has to do with how connected those areas are. Because as you wall off populations and they can't move and flow between places, we do understand, particularly from about the last 40 years' work, that um, as you as you hem in populations, you're sort of restricting um, their resilience to other things that could happen. You're restricting um, 
genetic diversity between populations. So as we get to sort of islands of parks in a otherwise, you know, world of humans, that is, um, that's, that's going to be a difficult situation to sustain over the long term um, because the smaller a place is, the dramatically less that it can um, support. So the land, the, the land, uh, it's a, it's a story, it's, it's an issue of connectedness. In the ocean, everything is uh, much more connected. Uh, also, species in the ocean are incredibly productive. They produce, you know, lots of eggs or lots of offspring. And the ocean can rebound from uh, over-exploitation fairly quickly and on a broad geographic scale because of the, the, the connectedness of, of the seas. So uh, it's a different situation in the, in the two. So if we, if we had, um, you know, a relatively modest mod part of the land set aside, but these were large interconnected areas, that would work. If we have an even larger amount of the world set aside, but it's in, in tiny little patches, that's not going to work. So it's, um, it's a different answer for the land and for the ocean. So let's uh, let's get a bit of background because you're, you're a molecular biologist, yet your research and arguments in this book are about the lives of well, really large animals on the Serengeti, and you uh, and you draw strong comparisons between the rules that govern molecules in our bodies and the rules that govern these large animals. So can you well can you explain this and and I guess tell us how did this all come about? Um. This all started with a visit to the Serengeti in 2014. First time I'd been there, and it's you know it's a biologist's dream. As a little kid, I grew up in a in a biodiversity cold spot in the upper Midwest of the United States, and um, you know I just read about these places or saw them on television, and I you know I hoped I might someday get a chance to go there. And when I went there, I was still not prepared for what greeted me, and that was the overwhelming numbers of animals thousands and thousands of zebra and wildebeest and gazelles and troops of elephants and large numbers of giraffes and so forth. And I realized I didn't understand what I was looking at. I really had no idea why there were so many wildebeest and really so few mm, topi, which is an animal of about a similar size. And I didn't know whether anybody knew these things. And as a professional biologist who's, who's you know made his living understanding about how the world works, at the more molecular scale, that's an unsettling feeling to, to sort of have reached one of your goals and to stare out across the landscape and go, I have no clue what I'm looking at. So that's what prompted this investigation of, of on my part of, of, you know, what do we know and, and how do we know it and who's figured this out? And a lot of the stories in the book are about the pioneers who have figured out how life works at various scales. And for me, these were new stories, new heroes for me to discover in terms of folks that had done long-term work on the Serengeti or some of the pioneering work in the, of creatures in the Pacific Ocean that have taught us some basic you know, first principles about what controls the numbers of things. And what, what started to resonate with me was that I thought they were asking, at, at least in scope, sort of the same sort of questions we ask at the, at the molecular level which is what controls the numbers of these things. I've worked on this aspect of regulation for my entire career, and I've worried about, well, how do you make this many molecules of that and that many molecules of that? You know, how does the machinery work? And it turns out they were just asking that question about, you know, wildebeest and starfish. Um, and I saw some analogies there, and I'll give you one of them. Um, so a general 
phenomenon you see at all scales in biology is feedback, feedback regulation. And there's a, there's a logic to it. So if, you know, how does the body know um, what it needs and how much to make of what it needs? Well, it, it works on a lot of feedback principles where if you don't have enough of something, you make it. And as you start to have enough of that or too much, you don't make it. And there have to be mechanisms in the body to sort of sense the amount of a particular substance and feedback on its production, either to ramp production up or to shut it down. And you see the same sort of feedback logic out on the Serengeti, which is when certain animal populations are scarce, perhaps after a disease outbreak, they rebound, they boom. And this was witnessed in the 1960s and 70s with wildebeest and buffalo. They roar back, then they sort of fill the place. And as the amount of food per individual starts to go down, the growth rate goes down and actually can, can tip over negative. And essentially, if you plot that curve, the, the making of wildebeest on the Serengeti and the making of, say, cholesterol in your body really follow a similar logic. And so I, I realized, I said, hey, I've seen this logic before, that what controls the number of things at this large scale is at least at a logical level very similar to what controls the numbers of things at, at the molecular and, and cellular scale. And I thought that seems to be something, you know, worth writing about, worth talking about, because I think it, it ties a bow around a lot of biology, that no matter what scale you're working at, this principle of regulation, what controls you know, the number of anything, um, is a really important process, uh, you know, no matter what. And it, and it brings pieces of biology together that generally have spent a long time, either you know, conceptually or physically or in a textbook, you know, geographically, a long, a, a long distance apart. And, and the ability to sort of talk about the human body and the numbers of bodies on the savannah or the number of fish in the ocean in the same breath is uh, something that uh, has not, not gone on before. Yeah, let's talk a little closer about some of these rules that you argue regulate the number of animals in nature. So first of all, could you talk to us about what a keystone species is and, and why they are so important? The discovery of keystone species was was really surprising to ecologists. If if you just sort of gaze out upon nature, and, and we've sort of been raised with this idea that, well, you know, every creature has its place in nature, and so we sort of think, you know, they're all important. And, and you know, maybe in some sense they are. But biologists have to do experiments. And it turns out if you remove these creatures, individual creatures from their place, and you ask what does that do to the whole system, they're not equal. And those first experiments done that way were done by a zoologist at the University of Washington named Bob Payne, working in the um, coastal system of the Pacific and little intertidal regions that had starfish and mussels and barnacles and kelp. And as he removed the starfish, the top predators in the system, he saw dramatic effects and perhaps not what you'd expect, which is you might imagine if you remove a predator from the system, well, then all of its prey will, will uh, you know, increase in numbers and you'll actually have greater diversity perhaps. But as it turns out, the whole community collapses down to essentially one species, which is mussels. So take away the predator and in this case, this, the prey, this superiorly competitive prey, mussels, outcompetes everything else on the rock and it all, all the rest disappears except for the mussels. So this 
predator, this starfish, it was necessary for maintaining the diversity of the whole community. And, and Payne coined the word a keystone after the architectural term in a Roman arch, where the keystone is you know, the last stone inserted and it supports the, the two columns. And without that keystone, uh, the columns collapse. And without the keystone species, the community collapses. And, and do we, so have, we, uh, have we gone through, I mean, do, have we experimented on all the way from starfish up to large predators, like wolves? Or? Well, yeah, we... By accident, we have. Um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't done in a in a in a scientifically rigorous way. It's it's done in hindsight, really. So what we now understand is that predators often play a keystone role. So in places like Yellowstone, it's clear because we've had situations where wolves were present and then we took them all away and now we've put them back, that wolves play this keystone role and have this dramatic impact on the diversity of the whole system, not just what happens with its prey, but what happens all the way down to the tree life, to the plant life in a place like Yellowstone. Um, we know that it's, it's just often the case that uh, predators, top predators, play this keystone role. They don't always play that keystone role and some keystones aren't predators. Wildebeest on the savannah are keystones because they essentially groom the whole landscape of the Serengeti. Uh, bees are keystones because they pollinate so many plant species. Um, so it's sort of a mixture of sort of ecosystem engineers and, and top predators that play these keystone roles. But it's so, it's so amazing, like the, the Yellowstone example, which is quite a well-known one, like it, 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 the, the, the course of the river changed. Yeah, and you got to understand sort of to, to connect all those dots so that without the wolves, what happened was that uh, elk uh, just had, you know, uh, complete freedom to uh, roam the park wherever they wanted and, and grew in numbers, exploded in numbers, um, such that they were browsing down the aspen, the cottonwood, the willow, and some of those species are grow along stream banks and they sort of hold the soil in on the stream banks. And without the wolves, and while... And, and cutting down all those, uh, the elk cutting down all those cottonwood and all the willows, you're getting a lot of erosion of the stream banks in Yellowstone, and that's changing the course of the river. Now, 20 years after the reintroduction of the wolves, the willow have grown back. Willow is a favorite food and building material for beavers. You have more beaver colonies in Yellowstone. That changes the course of, of water in Yellowstone. You have cottonwood growing back now along the stream banks, holding the soil in place. So, you know, these sort of connections, we just didn't imagine them very many decades ago. So, you know, we're still learning about how nature works, but we're learning that you know, things are connected in ways that we just didn't appreciate. And so we didn't understand the things that we were undoing when we, for example, have eradicated predators from, from lots of habitats. Is it, is it all species in a community that have this kind of strong relationship? Oh, not at all. So strong interactions are, are the rare ones. And that's really, um, the ecologists working in this area will tell you that the really important quest is to figure out the strong interactors. That's really important to the management of things like our fisheries is to understand, you know, what are the consequences? You know, the top predators in the ocean, uh, some of them are incredibly tasty, like tuna and cod. And so what happens when we move, remove those top predators? Um, that's really important. Even on our croplands, um, predators that, you, you know, you and I might not appreciate, spiders can play a huge role in the natural regulation of crop pests. And some of our practices annihilate um, some of these natural controls on pests like, like spiders. And we need to understand, you know, how things are working, even at the, you know, a, a blade of grass 
can be as complex a, a food chain you know, as the Serengeti. And we need to understand what's going on there. Just in terms of this understanding and looking at the system of a, of, a, of a wildlife park, where are we at with the understanding in terms of how much life that specific area can maintain? Like, for example, let's say it's a one square kilometer wildlife park. So we do we know it could be like three monkeys, four buffalo, a lion and a flock of geese? I mean, it's a great question. It's a great we... question. There's a there's a concept in ecology called carrying capacity. And, and really, um, if you know what an area can produce in terms of, say, food. So basically, the bottom of the food chain are the plants. They use the energy from the sun and, of course, uh, nutrients from the soil and rainfall um, to make food for the next level of the food chain, which are the things that eat plants. And if you basically understand the productivity of a given area, you can take a stab at how much of that plant eater life can be sustained by that, uh, by that area. Now, that just gives you sort of a gross number so that you might say, if, if you make this much plant food per acre, you can support, say, in just mass, uh, this many plant eaters. The proportion of those plant eaters, you know, that could be all grasshoppers, right? It could be a field of grass, and it could be in the form of all grasshoppers. It could be in the field of all cows. It could be in the form of all wildebeest. So we can't predict how the a diverse population, you know, what kind of diversity could exist there. We just basically know it can support probably, you know, a given amount of full of forage can support a given weight of forage eaters. And then that given mass of grazers, if you like, um, can support uh, a fraction in the form of predators. So we can kind of do those numbers of, of sort of the, the food chain but the actual composition at each of those levels is going to vary around the world. And we're really not, I think, in command of the rules that might say, why would there be, you know, one major dominant grazer in one place, but maybe 10 in another place? I think we, we need to study um, how that works. Uh, one thing we know is that the more diverse the food supply, so say lots of different kinds of grasses, may tend to support uh, a greater diversity of wildlife. And so the closer you get to a monoculture, the closer you may get to, um, you may have a sort of less, that may be able to be support less diversity than, uh, than you know, a greater array of, of, of plant life. I want to bring up now another of the ideas about how animals are regulated. And th this is the, the fascinating idea of 150 kilograms, or, or that the animals that weigh less than 150 kilograms are eaten by predators, and animals larger than 150 kilograms escape that, but are then regulated by food and disease. I love that story. It's amazing in a couple sense. First of all, I think the, the punchline is, I think it really helps us understand a place like the Serengeti. What astounded me was that we even had this data. And again, this is the reward of people working for a long time on the Serengeti, making careful observations over a long period of time. And Tony Sinclair from the University of, of uh, British Columbia has been out on the Serengeti for 50 years, and he really has wanted to understand how does this place work. And he and his colleagues, Simon Mduma and, and Justin Brashears, monitored the causes of mortality for some of the large mammals on the Serengeti. And when you plot these, you sort of, initially there's, there's kind of a real simple sort of um, two big bins here. Um, you've got 
a lifestyle of the smaller mammals, things like Oribe and Impala and Topi, where they essentially die 100% from predation. And I, it makes me think, you know, what, is, what do Oribe parents tell their youngsters as they're growing up? You know, someday, someday, someday Junior, you're going to be eaten alive and fulfill your purpose in nature. Um, at the other end of the curve, elephants, hippopotamus, um, rhinoceros, giraffes, very large animals, essentially zero predation. I mean, occasionally happens, but it's, it's insignificant relative to the population. So you really got two lifestyles. These animals that need to sort of, they live fast, die young, kind of the James Dean lifestyle. And then at the other end, you've, you've got, you know, the eat as much as you can and get so big that you escape predation. And I call that the Marlon Brando lifestyle. Just, <laughs> just, just get really big. And, and when you see that, when you realize that animals are using two strategies, you know, elephants, as we all know, they live a long time. They have a long gestation. They have a long period of parental care. They need a lot of food. So they've escaped predation, yes, but they need a lot of food. I mean, in, in 2016, or I mean, at the moment, we've kind of been given the keys to the car. Like, as humanity's, uh, humanity as a species, we're, we're now running the show. And I, I'm interested, in your opinion, do we have the scientific understanding to effectively manage nature and the environment? Well, that scientific understanding, that's a continual process. I mean, science is, is, is never done. What we do know is we know a lot of things now that we didn't know 30 to 50 years ago, but, they, but that knowledge has not yet become policy. We know better ways of managing our freshwater system, you know, lakes and ponds, so that we could have more fish, cleaner water, better drinking water, you know, more fun boating, more fun swimming, things like this. Um, we know that areas need to be connected on land for wildlife to do well. And um, so people are working to try to find corridors that will connect uh, wildlife. We know that, you know, putting roads right through the middle of things and sort of creating edges and, and isolating areas one from another um, have really disproportionate negative effects on what, how much uh, wildlife, how much nature can be supported in a, in a given place. So we had to learn all these sorts of things. Whether we're implementing that knowledge is a, is a very patchy, patchy picture across the globe. You have to have agencies, you have to have infrastructure, you have to have an expert workforce, you have to have policy, you got to have rules and regulations to do this sort of thing. And, you know, lots of parts of the world um, just, you know, haven't been in the mode of, you know, of managing their natural resources, you know, for as long as some others. And so, um, you know, the challenge before us is to share that knowledge, share that expertise, and especially to find policies that go across national borders, because, you know, some of this, uh, a, a lot of this is of, you know, joint concern for certain areas, if not, you know, widespread international concern, such as, such as the oceans. So I wouldn't say, I, I, we know enough to do better. We need to know more in lots and lots of situations. On uh, page nine of your book, you, you've got a little graph that's uh, is talking about Earth's production capacity. Can you explain why you, well, you explain what it is and why you included that? Well, it's a picture scientists have been trying to estimate essentially how much of the Earth's production does humanity use and the estimates were, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, it was less than what the earth produced in a given year, but now we've way overshot that. Now, some of that overshoot comes from using fossil fuels. So there's a lot of energy buried in the ground from previous hundreds of millions of years that we're 
you know, we're tapping. But nonetheless, it, you know, whether, whether you can think about this on a planetary scale or you can think about, you know, the ability of an acre to support, you know, any given amount of life, there's a certain carrying capacity of any given area. There's only so much food and water that it, um, that it contains and only so much food that it can produce year after year that can support the population that's there. And the, the concern is that 7.4 billion people, are ex our demands are exceeding what nature can supply, what the planet can supply. And we, you know, so we have, we have a lot of demands <clears throat> that that much larger population than it was 100 years ago has a lot of demands. And so we need to figure out how are we going to meet those demands? How are we going to manage, you know, land and water in, in such a way that we can, we can meet our needs. So really I, one thing I hope people take away from the book is it's not about just about, you know, making places pretty like the Serengeti or Yellowstone or Gorongosa, but it's really about making places functional that when you see, you know, a giant lake that's just choked with algae, that's an enormous waste of resources. That's a, that's a place that could be far more productive with from a human point of view um, than it is. And when we see croplands that have been, um, exhausted or, you know, soil that's been spoiled. Again, that's a wasted opportunity. And we have to be mindful that there's only so much the earth can produce. And if we don't manage these places, um, forests, lakes, oceans, um, you know, well, we're going to reach crises in terms of food supply, water supply to, to large populations. I'd like to end today, Sean, talking about the resilience of animal populations to come back after they've been decimated. Because you write in your book about the particular examples of, of a wildlife park, uh, Gorongosa in Africa. But, I mean, overall, if we're reducing these species to dangerously low numbers, what is the chance of them actually coming back? In 2000, the year 2000 survey, if all you added up all the large animals, the antelope, the buffalo, the elephants, the zebra, etc., there were fewer than a thousand in Gorongosa. Today, 10 years into the restoration, 71,000. So uh, the herds are rebounding, you know, in, in, amazingly. And, and this is really largely in a sense of just protecting them. That the, the what you're what you've eliminated is the excess mortality, you know, due to humans, and you're essentially refilling this park. The habitat's there, the land is there, the plant life is there, the water is there, um, the space is there. It just had all been emptied, and that story in Gorongosa illustrates a, a principle at large that I think is just too little appreciated, which is how resilient nature is on a scale of a decade this park is roaring back. And if we look at other cases of protected species, elephant seals, bald eagles, sea otters, um, humpback whales, wolves, they can come roaring back. Just in recently, uh, manatees uh, off Florida, they've, they've quintupled since they were protected about 40 years ago. Grizzly bears have about quintupled in Yellowstone. So nature is incredibly resilient given a chance. And that chance is generally habitat and some protection and some time. And we see it in the oceans with fisheries. When fishery stocks get depleted, so long as they're not exhausted, um, we can see pretty dramatic rebounds if we relieve the pressure upon them. And this is, I think, 
really the, the source of hope, uh, you know, going forward is to understand that given a chance, nature will rebound. So we've got to manage these places that, that give nature a chance. Sean, it was a, a pleasure going through your book and it was really great to be able to have a chat to you. Thanks so much for taking time out today. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to Sean B. Carroll talk about the ideas in his latest book, The Serengeti Rules. Sean's a professor of molecular biology and genetics at the University of Wisconsin. And you can check out his and many other interesting author interviews at our website, ideasbooks.org. My name is Craig Barfoot. Thanks so much for listening.